Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Stumper Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writer and critic Varot Nehru. Hello, hello. We all have seem to have had a haircut, so we're just freshly groomed. It's the season. It's the season, and we want it to look good for you, dear listener. So we the Oscars, uh, the Oscar season. Yeah, um, we're, we're going to be donning our tuxes on the big night. At the, is it the Kodak Theatre anymore or the Dolby Theatre? I think it's all streaming anyway. I think it'll be like five people at the Kodak Theatre. Right, okay. I, I want to dress Including up for my, you, you my the three of us plus Spielberg and, and Ghost of Harvey Weinstein? Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God, DiCaprio will be there. Uh, who hasn't won an Oscar? Tony Collette will be there just like holding out for another year. Glenn, Glenn Close, has she won an Oscar? No, she hasn't. <laughs> nominated. You know what she's doing next? Apparently, oh, she's been planning this for a while, so we'll see if it actually comes to fruition. But she wants to do a sun, the Sunset Boulevard musical adapted into a film. I mean, I mean if that's not like a pitch for the Oscar. That's so, the know. biggest Oscar bait you could do. And you know what? Gloria Swanson already did it perfectly. And the stage production it's decent, but it's not. It's far from Lloyd Webber's best musical. There's no point in doing it except to win Oscars. Anyway, that's what we're talking about in a couple of weeks because it is the Oscars ceremony. This week we are covering the sequel to Darren Aronofsky's 2017 film Mother, The Father. Right, yes, yes. Uh, this time around it's Anthony Hopkins um, as... As the father. Now he's the main character, um, but there's an evil mother and there's... In this one, yeah, you know, sort of a flip of uh, of mother. Look, everything is a cinematic universe now. There's no reason this can't happen. It is last of our Oscars coverage, and before we get into that, though, we're talking just news of the week. Um, other than the death of the uh, Queen's consort, big news of the week. Uh, but right, I'm sorry. I'm sure Glenn has some thoughts on this that he's saving you from. What, yeah. what's, what's <laughs> if I know anything about Glenn, it's that he loves the royal family. I mean, when we discuss the crowd, eventually, I think we can talk about. I'd, I'd be glad to talk about Netflix's The Crown. Uh, I'm looking forward to season five with Elizabeth Dickbeaky doing Diana, right? Yep, Jonathan yeah. Price is Prince Philip, and Milda Stoughton is the Queen. Anyhow, local film news of the week: <laughs> um, screening online, and in Geelong, the Geelong Pride Film Festival kicks off online. From tonight, as at the Sydney World Film Festival kicks off tonight and runs through the 24th of April at Palace Central. The Australian Silent Film Festival have an event on Sunday at the Mitchell Library. The Spanish Film Festival Australia starts on Tuesday. It's all Palace Cinemas. The premiere night is at Norton Street and runs for a few weeks. Also, in its now third iteration, the Fantastic Film Festival Australia is on from Friday. It is opening with Sean Shono's Prisoners of the Ghost Lands, starring Nicolas Cage, which is also screening throughout the festival. A couple of picks that um, are ones I'm quite looking forward to. One, the new Rodney Asher film, A Glitch in the Matrix, which is about virtual reality. I loved his first yeah. two films. So, uh, which this are one room, is good. Yeah. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah. At Sundance, right. Room 237 and The Nightmare were both really interesting documentaries, and this sounds like it's continuing in the same vein. This time... Uh, examining people's delusions about virtual reality and uh, living in a simulation. And yeah. the production style of it looks great for the premise. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a film like this. I'm very curious. Check out The Nightmare. That film is about people's uh, sleep paralysis demons and it recreates them. And it's actually a very scary film while also serving as a documentary. And also another pick, which is happening on Saturday, and there's also another screening. The Saturday event is a co-event with the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival, which is a screening of Lapsus, which is a fictional film about the very current matter of the gig economy with a very novel premise of surrounding drones and uh, gig shift workers. So something I'm curious to check out. 
Yeah, contract workers. Hey, hey. Lots of really good films, um, or at least really interesting films on the yeah. Fantastic Fest lineup it's this year. I also want to check out Siberia. Siberia is a Willem Dafoe film. Good. Okay. There's also yeah. another one which is good, which is Get Me the Hell Out of Here, the one that they have to escape the Taiwanese uh, parliament because everyone's turned into zombies. Oh, nice. Political that's, zombie theatre. I that's, love it. That's literally the premise. I, I can't. That's the shortest, most bizarre premise. Zombies need to be put anywhere we don't like, when, and you know, until the genre can be fully extinguished. Yeah. It's, it's actually a lot of fun. It's an old B-grade slasher thriller, which you want to you know have fun with. There's cool. also what, a puppet stop motion one, Old Man, that looks quite good. Yeah, it looks interesting. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a good lineup considering the amount of films that were released this year relatively. So go check it out. It's running for a couple you of weeks. You mean it's a fantastic lineup, it's right? A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It yeah, looks it to be a fantastic <laughs> film fest. Yes. <laughs> so check check it out. Uh, we'll be there at the Ritz. We'll be hanging out there. You can come find us. And it's fun to hang out at the Ritz bar upstairs. If you can't find us there, I'll definitely be at Four Frogs about country right across the road. Yeah, I'm there opening night for the Cajeton. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing another session. I'm okay on Friday, but yeah, Nicolas Cage, Sean Chono, premise alone, I'm down. I'll you you ran away from the, the vampire hotel. I mean, Rutz, you have no like right. It's time Rutz <laughs> brought that up. And okay. um, yes, Glenn was true. really tired and he saw that it was two hours, 40 minutes or something. <laughs> four hours, Chris. It was a four <laughs> hour movie. So I went to see the 70 minute film about <laughs> folks and their relationships with um, UFOs and also a lot of um, coverage on this matter, which is an interesting subject and was 70 minutes long. Yeah, fair. Okay, fair. Um, this is a film that's 97 minutes long, though, which is The Father. Do we want to talk about the Arclight thing? Yes, I'm oh, sorry. Yes, there's one other major piece of film news this week, which is Arclight Cinemas. It just broke yesterday, um, just actually before we were recording. And it's Arclight Cinemas America have announced that they will not be reopening post-pandemic. This might not mean much to you, but um, the if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the big dome theater, the Arclight Cinerama Dome, um, that's a really, really famous theatre. Um, as Deadline described it in their article, Breaking the News, um, it's a lot of people's favourite theatre and a lot of filmmakers' favourite theatre. Um, it's actually one of the highest grossing theatres in America. So it's hard for me to believe that something that iconic and that potentially lucrative is just going to close. It's possible that it could be more successful as an indie, because indie cinemas, for some reason, seems to be doing better through the pandemic than the major chains, which is the opposite of what you'd expect. But maybe they won't find a buyer. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, but it, it's very bad timing to run out of money because um, theatres are meant to go back to 100% capacity in Los Angeles in May, at the end of May. Um, and these guys have been closed since the start of the pandemic, basically. So... Um, hopefully they can pull through, but it could be a, a bad sign of things to come with the acceleration of the end of cinemas as everything becomes streaming based. And this is a harbinger of that more than most events that have happened yeah. even amidst the pandemic. And we hope that there is a place for big cinemas. We love them. And we certainly advocate watching films in it. I mean, a lot of these fantastic film festival films will be immediately available on streaming or soon available on streaming on the Ritz's and Lido's own streaming service, otherwise available on video on demand. Mm. But we recommend seeing this in them in this forum. They seem like built for cinematic. I mean, a lot of these films are coming from Sundance, which I saw on my laptop, but I still want to go and see them in the cinemas because that's what they're meant for. They're yeah. The small screen and just not doing it justice. Low budget films can still be very much built for the big screen experience. A lot of the time you see people saying they just go and see the big, the major tentpole blockbusters and, you know, indie, I can see it at home. But no, 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 
a lot of these filmmakers, someone like Abel Ferrara is thinking about the big screen. Especially Siberia. Siberia that you brought up has mm. very good sound design, which you cannot do justice to on a small screen, especially if you're looking through like computer sound speakers, which, you know, it's cool, but like it doesn't really do justice to the actual concept. Right, right. Mm. So we'll continue to cover this issue as we have before on subsequent episodes and hopefully they do have a buyer and that these forums can continue when people in America can go see them. At the very least, the dome, because it would be a shame for... I see Tarantino scranging together to buy it. Yeah, I, I feel like he won't let it shut. He's but, bought theatres before, so... It's, mm. it's like a symbolic thing, right? I mean, if that shuts down, then in what hope do other cinemas it's kind get of, less Yeah, it's iconic. kind of not quite at the same level, but almost like Grauman's Chinese theatre closing. Yeah. 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 So that is Cinema News for the Week. You're listening to Film Fight Club on 2SL with Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans and Varat Nehru. In the last film of Oscars coverage, it is the new film, The Father. It is starring Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Mark Gattis, Olivia Williams, Imogen Poots and Rufus Sewell. It is directed by Florian Zeller from the French play by Zeller and edited importantly by Yorgos Lanthimos, a subject will... No, no, Yorgos Lamprimos. Oh, I've got that confused. I saw yeah, the name yeah, in the yeah. credits. No. When, when the name came up in the credits, I leant over um, to my girlfriend and said, the confusingly named. Right, that's very frustrating. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. like really? Really? They got, they got him to edit this? This doesn't seem right, but I saw it in there. there all right, I, yeah, excuse yeah. me. Sorry for all the other Yorgosses out there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and Yorgos Lam X Imos. Is yeah. that the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, can you all the gigs like, oh, we got yours. Oh, oh. it's the uh, other guys. Also very good, as oh, we'll get yeah, into. Yeah, I bet so many people are like, I loved the lobster. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the, the editing is actually a great thing about this movie. It is, so yeah. Um, also, just to note, uh, th- there was a local production of this you might have seen some years ago by John Bell at the Sydney Theatre Company. Um, it is about Anthony, played by Anthony Hopkins, who lives in a flat in London, and we his relationship with his daughter, his daughter at the outset expresses concerns to him about his state obviously is an elderly man and there are and then events start to transpire and broadly speaking we have to ask ourselves what is the nature of these events um, what are we seeing what are the consequences and we are so caused to question um, the extent what which we are seeing is accurate I'll go a little bit further with spoilers than Glenn did in that introduction because I think it becomes pretty clear that that's something going on related to Alzheimer's in, in here with it, because immediately this guy is forgetting things and there's confusion about. Um, but the way the film presents this, the narrative is about a, memory in the play, and it plays with memory. It's a play within a play, yeah. within a play of memory as to what is true and what is not accurate. At, at, from the outset, it's very clear that this is at least the possibility of what is going on. You, yeah. Of course, there is some guesswork at play, and that's as the mm. as the narrative causes us to. But do. I, I don't feel that I've spoiled the film because even knowing that it's Alzheimer's, it's still a question of what is the actual reality that's taking place. Yes, I think I think that's very fair, and they do discuss um, his health state at the outset of mm. the film. So I I quite liked this film. I, I, there's a lot we can get into regarding the editing, production design, but we've talked in the show before about how a lot of this. Is, I haven't seen the play, but it's very clear that this, with minimal changes, could have been staged text word for word as per the play. We've talked about films like Fences where or the producers where it's just badly adapted. But there's an example, not just where I feel it's well adapted, but where the narrative is actually, as written, works in the confines of a film because a lot of it does take place within a static environment, but it is endemic to narrative because it creates a feeling of suffocation, which um, certainly 
we want the director wants us to experience and which feel fuels um, the environment and claustrophobia of which um, uh, makes us relate more, more and more to the main character. I agree. I mean, uh, part of the reason why I think plays don't really work as text-based adaptations is because what are you bringing with the visual medium, which you wouldn't be on theatre on stage. In this case, editing actually works because the playing with... What Playing is true and what is space. not true in plan time and space, and you know, not just with the narrative consistency of what comes first and what comes after, but also the idea as to how that narrative experience is different in each timeline. Mm-hmm. You know, as to the, the more and more you experience something, the more fuzzy it becomes, and how you can visually show that versus just in a text based understanding of, you know, am I forgetting things? Is this real? These are all, you know, cliched questions, but to show and not tell. Zilla, you know, that's actually more interesting. Zella worked with a screenwriter in adapting this, um, which I think was a, a good idea. Uh, Christopher Hampton. Um, it's been reimagined cinematically, but yeah. that said, I still feel like you can see the roots of this being a play. Um, I feel like if this was something written for the screen with this subject matter, it would be more fluid with time and place. It wouldn't be locked to two locations. It would delve much more into memory and going throughout this man's life. I think... And that's my key. The, the weakest part, I think it's a good act, but the weakest part of this film was actually the first act where you see the direction, a lot of it is shot, reverse shot, um, like in a lot of typical film, whereas with theatre, with these sorts of environments, and certainly with these sorts of actors, you want to see them interact. The way the narrative develops, um, it permits the camera to do so. And when things start to play a little more freely with time and space, as Chris says, the film starts to become more cinematic, more interesting, and it feels like you're not just in an environment watching a play. When, as this would have been staged, it would have been largely one set, and it's meant to create an idea of a bigger world, whereas having one set in the film has the converse effect of creating, making you feel constricted. Mm-hmm. And as we come more and more in the set, um, the film leans into that rather than trying to resist it which I think was a good conceit of the director. Yeah. Um, My issue with the film, like my biggest issue with the film is that maybe this is too harsh a word, but the conceit starts to feel a little bit gimmicky to me. At first, I admire what they're doing in trying to simulate the mind of a person with Alzheimer's to some extent. But as it goes on, I started to know what was going I started to figure it out and the film continues along this certain pattern um, but th- th- I think I, I think I know what you're trying to say because the film tries to have it both ways I mean yes, there's I was an understanding that. kind of where it is trying to show that what the mind of the Alzheimer's person would look like but it's also doing it selectively that's right you know there are, there are certain instances where you feel like this is happening and certain instances which remain fixed exactly right, as, as the play's point of view yeah um there, there came a point in this where um, I stopped getting an emotional kick from realizing what was happening to this man's mind. And the biggest, um, the most moving parts of the film were scenes that aren't relying on this trick of playing with time and space. And I would respect the experiment, as you say, um, if it were locked into his mind for the entire way through the film. But we spend a lot of time actually... Uh, actually outside of his perspective with scenes that give us more of the context to what's actually going on with ex- uh, characters outside of his mind conversing about his, his state. So um, knowing that we, we already are leaving this confined state of his mind, 
um, as I got bored of the conceit as the film dragged on, I thought, why are we not spending more time? You know, we, I think by, there's a point about three quarters of the way through the film where everyone gets the point. It would have been better for the film to expand in more directions and show us more about how other people are coping with this. Yeah, to elaborate on that, I think there's a point, and I know which point Chris is referring to, and it's necessitated by characters interacting in a certain way and certain characters interacting, which lends credence to a particular interpretation which bears out in the film. I think a lot of this uh, was good when it plays out in the language of a suspense thriller, but isn't necessarily a suspense thriller. It deals with a very mature issue and a very important issue, but it deals with it maturely. I think that's um, important. I think that they could have been, it could have been better if they'd, from a narrative perspective, I understand what they were doing from a thematic perspective. From a dramatic perspective, the film loses a great deal of momentum at this point, around the beginning of the third act. Yeah, and so. um, having said that, the ending I found to be very good. There are very moving scenes throughout. I think individually, I think where the film works really well are these sort of micro moments that are magnified, yeah. you know, where you kind of feel like these are these throwaway moments in other films, which would not get so much credence and so much time. And they're really shown under the microscope and they're really kind of blowed up into becoming these massive things, which otherwise seem perfunctory in other films or such, you know, they, they're just scenes where you could, the characters are just returning to certain places. They're, they're you know, they're trying to situate where their bed is or where their things are. They're just normal things otherwise, which are kind of boring, but that's given more significance and prominence in this film. So in that sort of thing where the micro moments are kind of, uh, sort of take on bigger significance. I think that was probably the strength of the film. But at the same time, what it did mean was that I kind of got bored of the idea that if everything mundane has taken on such significance, then like, what is the the fixed point of neutrality where I can operate in and say, what is what is mundane? Like, what is if like is this chair also going to somehow come back and you know be of more significance than it is? Because it's a I wasn't bothered by this. No, it didn't know. bother me either. Um, um, that's what is important and, and takes people's attention for a great deal of time. Yeah. Something that we haven't really touched on and that the marketing did not give me a sense of at all is how funny this is. Initially, just because the oh, guy yeah. is so belligerent and witnessing his confusion, it's simultaneously funny and tragic. There's definitely a degree of, of comedy to Anthony Hopkins's performance. I don't think I'm just being cruel and laughing at a man with Alzheimer's when I say that... There is a degree of absurd comedy in the early stages of the, of the film, especially. No, I, th I think you're right. I think this is one of Hopkins' better performances. He likes to appear to the dramatic, and he's good, certainly, in The Sons of Lambs and The Fracture and these types of films. My favourite performance to date, and this is a rival for it from Hopkins, at least the ones I've seen, is The World's Fastest Indian, where he plays Burt Monroe, where similarly plays a character who is ageing, who has a zest for life, who is funny, and there's these great tragic comic moments throughout. I think he brings a lot of that character and that style to this. Um, you're, he's obviously just a very inherently charming person, and when he talks about being a dancer and there's a nostalgic element to it, he feels sort of brought along with it. And I think feeling so endeared to him is so necessary um, to and – not, and not just feeling, oh, this woe be this, but feeling endeared to him in a, yes, I want to be a part of your life, is so important to empathise with his character and where ultimately the film goes. And it is because he's also, as I said before, extremely belligerent. You know, um, he spends a lot of the first – 
half to quarter of the film being cruel to people. And so we need to see the other sides to him. And, you know, the, the switch seemingly comes at random. And, and we realize that it's a defensive mechanism, but it's still painful witnessing the way that the other characters um, react to it. Speaking of which, I thought Coleman was really, really good in this. I got the sense that she maybe didn't have the best relationship with this man even before the illness set in at times. You can sense a lot of complicated emotions in her performance. I mean, Olivia Colman always, I think, has been a great dramatic actress, but I don't think she's ever got that credit. Uh, she's won the Oscar, though. But, but even for The Favourite, uh, you know, we weren't, yeah, we weren't really understanding that there is that dramatic... Uh, she brought that to, it. no, she brought that to The Favourite. There was a, there was a mix. It was she a, absolutely did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's, it's interesting in that sense. But I think here, definitely, especially with that. And I think it's... It's a good point that you brought up where the belligerence is, you know, balanced off with what happens later on. That mm. helps the narrative and not go into like tragedy porn. Yeah. Essentially, because yeah. then you know that uh, this character was perhaps not a saint or there mm. was not the most likeliest man in the world. And then not saying that he deserves what's coming. I'm not going implying that, but it's just it's nice to know that this character had flaws yeah. and then they were explored and then what happens to him it's just part of his life. It's part of a narrative rather than this person who was doing good things was suddenly beset with all these problems. You're right that it avoids the trap of falling into tragedy porn. Yeah. Um, even the, the elements of humour I'm talking about and the surrealism help kind of offset what could have been just a very, very dour and bleak film. And it is still it is still tragic and it yeah. is still moving. Yeah. Um, turning to, again, Olivia Colman and some of the other performances, I think um, Williams, Gaddis, they're good in this. Imogen Poots was a standout for me, though. She was wonderful. She 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 really? isn't. She's she really seriously good. underrated actress. Yeah. Um. Sewell was good too. And just to return to again how this film is staged, at least directed in the first act versus the others. I think it's a terrible. Cons- I, you see a lot of directors who have, uh, have, have done theater type productions or otherwise done theater, and there's this tendency to either do wide shots or do really intimate close-ups because they want to get the actors. Uh, you know, the real emotions. Yeah. I think in the first act, you see all these act, moments. Act with the face, the, the box thing. Mm. You see all these scenes where they've gone really close and wanted to emphasize a point, particularly something which a subtlety about um, Olivia Coleman's sister, which I don't think we'll get, but trust us, we'll get it. Later in the film, it seems, I don't know if this was shot linearly, it seems it may very well have been because later in the film, the director certainly sets it back and knows that you have these actors, not just good, but of an incredible caliber, like Coleman, like Hopkins, some of the best of their generation, honestly. And he trusts, he sets it back and trusts them to impart what is necessary. And it does. Um, more to that, uh, so we don't often talk about editing, but with so much editing, it's just you're in a new scene, you're in a new location. This switch between scenes here is so seamless and almost ethereal. The editing had to be strong in that way for this to work. I mean, I mean, some of the transitions were really interesting in this film. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, it just it, yeah, it helped. It really helped move um, the film along because. Um, you want it to just be situated in the person's mind, and that's how often you are when you think you may be forgetful or this. And but and what I what I did like in that sense was like there were certain scenes where some of the edits and the transitions would stop here, and then the same action would continue, and you're already in the next scene, right? For example, yeah. let's say a hand would time go starts up to blur. And your time starts to blur, and you're like a glass is lifted, and then as soon as it's down you are in next in a new time and space. Very clever so, choice yeah. of edits. Yeah, so it almost feels like a continuous stream of consciousness kind of feel to it. Mm. I have a criticism 
um, of sort of just going back to the conceit and the broad structure of the film, um, just the way in which everything becomes clear at the end. I understand that if that was not the case, this would not be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I had to simplify it for the Oscar people. Yeah, but <laughs> it, it's, it sort of it betrays the... Uh, the concept in a way, you know, like we're immersing yourself in a world of conclusion, it's, it's but we also go into at a couple of moments, Olivia Coleman's fantasies. And we mm-hmm. also go to moments um, where, yeah, where we leave his perspective entirely. Um, and at the end, everything about what's going on is, falls into place and, and is solved for us. I mean, it's not a, it's not a David Lynch film where, uh, you know, we're let, we, we can end it with the character lost in a world of confusion but if the idea was to simulate what's going on in this mind, maybe it should have been. See, I don't know if I entirely agree because I think the film is more of about its thematic heft than its stylings. I appreciate it's told in the style of a psychological thriller, but it's ultimately about a subject which which wants to convey. The ending of the film is to that effect rather than creating a stylistic ending a la, say, Shutter Island or, to use an extreme example, an Inception. And I like that it was grounded in the end um and i found that sequence was memorable also the sequence was beautiful don't get me wrong and those i also think by consequence it may not very well have had probably the most moving Steve hopkins in the film which i found at the very end of the film i'll 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 pay that i think i just would have liked to have seen the film um play a little bit more so that the times that it diverges from his perspective don't feel kind of like a cheat if if the film didn't just occasionally do that for effect um, if it left his perspective more, I think it would be more interesting past a certain point mid to late in the film and also uh, would have been, you know, it would have felt more consistent by, uh, you know, admitting its own inconsistency. And to that point, something that didn't happen in uh, what's the film we covered earlier in the year with Vince Vaughn, um, Freaky, and mm-hmm. apparently didn't happen in Suzanne. Oh, yeah. Not Suzanne, uh, Kazam or the one with Sacred Levi, the... Shazam. Shazam. Um, It's very clear that even though certain actors did not share certain scenes together, that there was cooperation and involvement and working together of actors across sequences, crucial to this film by very good actors, which worked very well. There's also, um, without giving too much away, there's an aspect of this film involving characters being played by different... Well, actually, it it appears very early in the film, so I don't think it's, it's a spoiler the same sort of characters being played by different actors or role switching around. And I thought the actors all did a very good job at mirroring each other's performances, which shows a a nice consistency in the direction. But something about the direction I do want to criticize, there's a couple of um, visual metaphors that pop up in this film, including one that it closes on that I don't think are that strong. I think have have sort of been thrown into the script because there's the feeling that it needs to become more more cinematic... And it, it needs a metaphor. We're over it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'm I'm always up for visual metaphors, but I don't like the as I'm coming around more and more to your point of view of I don't like these sledgehammer things that you know, especially when they get explained to us and then we see them, uh, as happens in the end of this film. <laughs> as, but, as long as they're not in the title. But the, the oh yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the biggest um, distracting one for me. I, okay, I can't explain it without giving it away. But I'll just say that there's a um, an image that it, that appears in this, um, which is very very heavy handed and oh, yeah. only functions as that's a movie image. It doesn't make any sense um, in the act. It's not um, an image that appears well well situated within Anthony's head. Um, no, but it, it, it's just there to kind of uh, synthesize the plot right. and sort of like give it give it that cinematic yes. twenty four frames a second kind of feel to it. Okay. <laughs> 
My issue with this big image, you'll know it when you see it, um, is that it makes no sense within the diegetic context. It makes no sense within the location that it appears within the film to be there. And it, it took me out of the film to realize that because later in the film, when there's talk about going for a walk, I kept thinking, man, the characters are seeing that thing. And I actually started to laugh in the middle of a really serious scene. Um, I'm not referring to it. I broadly agree. I, I, I would just wish heavy handed metaphors would appear in films as yeah. it did here. They dragged it down. There's, there's, I think um, big visual metaphors are something that it takes quite a bit of directing skill and maybe Zella is not quite there yet as a film director, but yeah. you know, maybe one day. A final note in the ending, I think people might feel disappointed in the way they were with the undoing where we didn't expect or want something to go in this direction. But for the reasons said before, I like when a film grounds itself, I like when it's very thematically focused and directed and I feel that it was not disappointing but actually uplifting and elevating in this regard, um, absent the visual metaphor which Chris referred to. So that is The Father. It is in cinemas now. We'll be doing more Oscars coverage in the coming weeks. We'll give you our thoughts and predictions the weeks before the, the film comes out. Uh, we will most likely be wrong because, you know, we we always pick the most hey, risky hey, choices. I've won workplace Oscar sweepstakes before, okay? Yeah, <laughs> I, I have two, damn it. Yeah. I'm, it's, it's happening. And the next week when we're going supernova. Yeah, we're going supernova. Actually, that sounds like it's going to be on similar subject matter and also will make you cry. So yeah, hooray. I, I, yeah. I was in the I was in the screening for the father and the trailer came on. I hadn't seen the trailer for this yet. And I wanted to step up, and no, I just I, I stayed. I just talked to my the, uh, theater going companions through it, and but I basically got the gist that it's going to be a bit similar to the father. So this has been Glenn Fowling, Sankar Simmons, and Rat Nehru. Thank you for joining us on Film Fight Club. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Uh, please subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and let us know what you want us to fight about. Yeah, Oscars are going to be uh, done soon, so we need more movies to talk about. Yeah. We we'll find them. find them. Life finds a way. Have a good night and enjoy movies. Bye-bye.